Education Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Cerebral venous thrombosis is not a diagnosis that you're going to make every shift in the emergency department, but it is an important diagnosis. This is the DVT of the brain. You get clot in the major veins or in the dural sinuses. Then you're either going to get some localized pain and swelling or because the blood no longer drains from your head, you get raised ICP and a whole whack of problems. It'll happen in about 1 in 100,000 people per year, so it's rare, but not so rare. In a city like Toronto, there'll be around 50 cases a year, so we got to keep our eyes open. This segment was originally prompted by a new decision rule that was just published this year that was supposed to help us diagnose CVT, but unfortunately, that trial was just really bad with incredible bias. And even with all the bias, the rule still sort of sucks with a sensitivity specificity just about 80%. So the rule is not usable. It can't help us. So instead of discussing the study and the decision rule, I thought it would be useful to do a quick review of cerebral venous thrombosis. This disease is very difficult to diagnose. It can present in so many different ways. And that sort of makes sense. Because if you get a small clot, you might just get some localized pain. But as the clot gets bigger, you might get neurologic symptoms, but those will depend a lot on which vein is clotted. And then the worst presentations occur when you get massive thrombosis that prevents blood from leaving the skull, leading to raised intracranial pressure, hemorrhage, and even herniation. So unfortunately, there are many different presentations. Almost all of these patients are going to have a headache, and 25% of patients will present with only a headache. About 40% of patients will have a focal neurologic deficit, about 40% of patients will have a seizure, and then some patients present with a full-blown encephalitis picture. So that's a pretty massive spectrum. We need to think about this condition in our sickest patients because it's on the differential for altered mental status, stroke, and seizure. But we also need to think about this presentation when working in an ambulatory care zone because 25% of these patients will present with just a headache and nothing else. That might sound almost impossible, but hopefully we're going to get some clues from the demographics. This is a condition of young patients. The average age is 39 years old, and it's three times as likely in females as it is in males. And the thing that ties these patients together is that they have thrombosis risk factors. 90% of these patients will have at least one thrombotic risk factor. Remember, this is the DVT syndrome of the brain. So postpartum patients, cancer patients, patients with known thrombotic states. If the patient had presented with chest pain, you'd be working them up for PE. Instead, it's that same PE patient, but now they're presenting with a headache. Again, there are so many ways that this can present. I think it's almost standard of care to miss this diagnosis. But if we want to get a little bit better, I think there are a few groups of patients where we must consider this diagnosis. 
Group one is patients with a severe or a prolonged headache where you don't have a good explanation and the patient has a thrombotic risk factor. So think about the patient that you would normally work up for a PE. If that patient comes in with a severe headache that you can't explain, CVT is a diagnosis to consider. Group two is the thunderclap headache. The patient that sounds exactly like they have a subarachnoid hemorrhage and you're actually sort of surprised that their workup is negative. If that patient has thrombotic risk factors, maybe it was a clot, not a bleed. Group three is sicker. So these are the stroke patients, but they have something unusual that makes you think that this isn't just a simple ischemic stroke. They might have a severe headache, which isn't that common in stroke. They might have a seizure, or they might have neurologic findings that don't fit a classic stroke pattern. Now, you might be less worried about this group because, of course, they're going to see a neurologist anyway, but making the diagnosis of CVT early could drastically change how we manage these patients and could potentially really help your patient. And then the fourth group are actually patients with intracranial hemorrhage. But again, the hemorrhage doesn't fit a classic bleed pattern, especially in younger patients or patients who seem more likely to clot than to bleed. And this might be the most important group of patients because the treatment is so counterintuitive. Even though they're bleeding into their head, these patients need anticoagulation. So how do you make the diagnosis once you suspect it? Well, there might be some clues on a plain CT, but in general, these patients are going to need advanced imaging. MRI is probably the best, but realistically, almost all of us are going to get a contrast CT venogram, which is about 95% sensitive. How is it treated? Well, if your patient's really sick, start with the basics, right? Manage your ABCs. If there's raised intracranial pressure, we got to treat that. If the patient's in status epilepticus, we got to treat the seizures. But the specific treatment for cerebral venous thrombosis is anticoagulation. And that's even the case if there's already intracranial hemorrhage. That seems crazy. I know the patient is bleeding in their brain and we're going to start them on an anticoagulant. But the only way that we're going to stop the bleeding is to clear those veins out so that the pressure drops and so the blood can again escape the cranium. Obviously here, raised ICP, bleeding in the brain, CVT is not a good diagnosis. And it's true, the 30-day mortality is about 5% and about 15% of patients will have some severe disability. But I was surprised. Overall, the prognosis here is pretty good. About 80% of patients make a full recovery. So you want to be thinking about this diagnosis because this is a scenario where you can make a big difference. Remember, this is the DVT of the brain. So be on high alert for patients with thrombotic risk factors. Those same patients where you'd be worried about a PE, if they show up with severe unexplained headaches, CVT needs to be on the differential. And then when you're resuscitating our sickest patients, our ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke patients, remember that venous clots can occasionally cause those symptoms as well. So if there are atypical features, severe headache, a stroke that started with a seizure, a pattern that doesn't quite fit, especially in a younger patient with thrombotic risk factors, think CVT because it could completely change the patient's management. Thank you, Justin. Tough diagnosis. Great tips on when to think about it. Okay, question. Do you use diphenhydramine, i.e. Benadryl, for patients who present to the ED with allergic reaction or anaphylaxis? Do you send them home with it? Is it your go-to antihistamine? Is there anything that works better with less side effects? Here's Maria Vankovic to give you some answers. Diphenhydramine, aka Benadryl, is a first-generation antihistamine that's been around since the 1940s. 
For some reason, it is still one of the most commonly recommended antihistamines by doctors in Canada, despite much better alternatives. Old habits die hard, I guess, and this couldn't be truer for diphenhydramine. So what's the problem with good old diphenhydramine and the other first-generation antihistamines, such as hydroxyzine? Well, these drugs were introduced way before current licensing standards and didn't have to pass the rigorous safety and efficacy standards of today. They have poor receptor selectivity and non-specifically bind muscarinic, serotonin, and alpha-adrenergic receptors, as well as cardiac potassium ion channels, leading to a lot of side effects, some of which are potentially life-threatening. These agents cross the blood-brain barrier and can cause CNS suppression, psychomotor impairment, paradoxical excitation in children, delirium in the elderly, coma, and even death. First-generation antihistamines can also cause arrhythmias. In 2016, Health Canada issued a black box warning that hydroxyzine can increase the risk of QT prolongation and trissade de point. First-generation antihistamines have been implicated in a startling number of accidental and non-accidental overdoses. These potent anticholinergics are also drugs of abuse. You may have heard of recent reports of teenagers ending up in emergency departments or dying after participating in what's known as the Benadryl Challenge, encouraged in videos posted on the social media app TikTok. One RCT found that 50 milligrams of diphenhydramine impairs your driving more than a 0.1% blood alcohol level. In other words, a therapeutic dose of Benadryl would affect my driving the same as four to five drinks would. That's pretty scary. In Europe, these older antihistamines are only used as sleep aids. Having said that, they don't actually induce quality sleep and can cause a hangover-like effect. So bottom line is that first-generation antihistamines such as diphenhydramine are not safe. In fact, the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology published a position statement in 2019 warning against the use of first-generation antihistamines for hay fever and hives in both adults and children. They also recommended that first-generation antihistamines should be restricted to behind-the-counter access in pharmacies. Now, the second-generation antihistamines are much safer. Unlike the first generations, they are also very unlikely to have drug-drug interactions, they're faster in onset, and have a longer duration of action. Some of the newer antihistamines that you might recognize include cetirizine, brand name Reactine, loratadine, brand Claritin, desloratadine, brand name Arius, and fexofenadine, brand name Allegra. Two of the newer second-generation antihistamines that are prescription-only in Canada are rupatidine, brand Rupal, and belastine, brand name Blexton. Although the second-generation antihistamines are often touted as non-drowsy and often advertised as such, it's important to know that both cetirizine and loratadine can definitely cause sedation. One of the favorite new agents for use in adults and children is rupatidine. It has a liquid and a pill form, a fast onset, very few side effects, and it's very safe. Most hospitals in Canada carry cetirizine as their second-generation antihistamine. Some EDs, though, have already switched to rupatidine and gotten rid of PO diphenhydramine altogether. In Canada, our only injection antihistamine is still diphenhydramine. In the U.S., an injectable form of cetirizine is currently available, and it's likely to make its way to Canada at some point soon. Having said that, it's actually very rare that our patients need an IV antihistamine anyway, unless they're continuously vomiting or unconscious. 
you might be wondering about anaphylaxis. Well, the first-line treatment for anaphylaxis is epinephrine and not an antihistamine. If a patient has urticaria and vomiting, that sounds like anaphylaxis and they need epi. If you treat their anaphylaxis and they complain of a residual itch, then I would recommend a second-generation antihistamine orally. So the bottom line is we need to change our old habits. The first-generation antihistamines, such as diphenhydramine, are not safe. We now have much better, newer agents, and we should get to know them well and choose them as first-line therapy. A great example of ED treatments that many of us give just because that's the way we've been doing it for years. My personal practice when sending home patients with histamine-type allergic reactions is to give them a prescription for two things. One, a long-acting second-generation antihistamine to take in the morning, and then for night, diphenhydramine QHS for a couple of nights, just so that they aren't kept awake by intolerable ish that they might have. I'm interested to know what your practice is. Okay, next up, we have Britt Long for the Best of EM Doc series, giving us the lowdown on the diagnosis of abdominal compartment syndrome. You can't diagnose what you don't consider. Abdominal compartment syndrome is not an easy diagnosis, especially in the emergency department. A big issue is that we may see this deadly disease in boarding patients or for those of us who work in major trauma centers and receive sick patients as transfers. With the major mortality with abdominal compartment syndrome, we need to know this disease as we can make a big difference in the care of these patients. But first, what is it? Abdominal compartment syndrome is a sustained intra-abdominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury with evidence of end organ injury. Now there are a huge number of risk factors, which you don't need to remember. But what can help you think about this condition is the underlying issues. Number one, decreased compliance of the abdominal wall. Number two, increased contents in the lumen of the intestines. Number three, increased content in the abdomen. And finally, number four, leaky blood vessels and lots of fluid during your resuscitation. Honestly, abdominal compartment syndrome is just like any other form of compartment syndrome with increased pressures in a fixed space causing ischemia and end-organ damage. But one major difference is the end-organ damage. Abdominal compartment syndrome can affect the renal, central nervous system, cardiovascular, pulmonary, and biliary systems. All of these systems can be severely damaged in abdominal compartment syndrome, which is one of the reasons that this disease has such a high mortality rate. Now, what can you find on history and exam? Most patients will be critically ill, either intubated or with poor mental status. Awake patients may have increasing abdominal pain, distended abdomen, and trouble breathing. But the problem is that our exam to diagnose abdominal compartment syndrome is not sensitive. Abdominal distension and increased wall tension are specific, but they can't be used to exclude the diagnosis if they aren't present. If the patient is intubated, what can you use? One of the first signs will be a decreased urine output and oliguria with renal dysfunction. Another big finding is trouble with ventilating the patient and high pressure alarms on your ventilator. If you've obtained a CT, this may show a collapsed IVC, thickened abdominal wall, elevated diaphragm, and increased AP diameter of the intestines. If you think the patient has abdominal distension, oliguria, you're having trouble ventilating, 
and you have other signs of end organ problems, the key in diagnosis is measuring the intra-abdominal pressure. There isn't a striker device we use in the ED that you can place right into the abdominal wall, but you can use something we use every shift, a Foley catheter to measure the intra-abdominal pressure. A bladder pressure obtained in this way is a great way to look for elevated intra-abdominal pressure. This can be used with a pressure monitor and arterial line setup. Make sure to zero the pressure transducer at the bladder level in the mid-axillary line and install a maximum of 25 milliliters of warm saline. Before you read the pressure, wait 30 seconds for the detrusor muscle to relax. Now let's say your bladder pressure comes back as greater than 20 and you have evidence of end organ injury based on other testing. What do you do to treat this disease? Just like the diagnosis, treatment is tough. First, you need a surgeon, as surgical decompression is often the definitive treatment. In the ED, first target improving compliance of the abdominal wall by treating pain and providing sedation. Also place the patient in reverse Trendelenburg. Next, decompress what you can with an NG tube and Foley catheter. Metoclopramide can also help with decompression. If ascites is present, try to remove as much fluid as you can, which will help decrease pressures. Fluid status is difficult, as too much fluid can hurt the patient, while too little is also dangerous. Aim for a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters, which can improve the perfusion pressure to the organs in the abdominal cavity. To do this, you may need vasopressors such as norepinephrine. Finally, the patient will need the ICU for further care. Remember, you can't diagnose what you don't know. Abdominal compartment syndrome comes from too much content in the abdominal cavity and decreased compliance of the abdominal wall. Think about the disease in the sick patient with abdominal distension and oliguria. To diagnose it, you need to check a bladder pressure. Treat pain, provide sedation, and remove what you can with an NG tube and Foley catheter. Finally, get your surgeon on the phone as the patient may need the OR. A little knowledge goes a long way, especially with this deadly disease. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Things in emergency medicine have really been under strain and change for the last several months. COVID has exposed weaknesses in our scheduling systems and practices. When staff went off sick or on quarantine, we really saw how thin our rosters were and how every worker and every shift mattered. Whether your ED has lower than usual volumes or higher volumes because of COVID, your old scheduling templates just don't cut it. Through all of this, Metricade has been agile and responsive. Metricade actively participates in the day-to-day reactions to COVID on the workforce. They help modify schedules on the fly, adjusting hours of shifts and daily rosters, and making the most of limited resources. By taking over a lot of the new and complicated administrative burden on managing our schedules during the pandemic, they've shown that they are more than just a scheduling system. They become true partners in staff health, safety, and satisfaction. Metricade is ready to bring you on board anytime, and I'm confident they'll be able to help us through whatever uncertainty lies ahead. For our pediatric segment this month, Sarah Reed is going to talk about a very common but not terribly exciting presentation, one that we probably mismanage a lot of the time, and that is neonatal constipation, not pooping in the tiny little tot. Take it away, Sarah. 
So it's pretty common for us to see a newborn in the eMERGE with the chief complaint of no stooling, and that's usually going to be triaged as constipation. But this is usually a reflection of the fact that breastfeeding is just not well established yet, and the baby's actually not feeding well. So there's definitely a few serious diagnoses to consider, but this assessment can usually be done by a good history and a, and a physical exam to rule out the red flags. So if the baby's vitals are normal and they appear well, you can start with your history and we want to know about the ins and the outs. So how is the baby being fed? If they're bottle fed, you want to know how many ounces and how often. If they're breastfed, you want to know how long the baby's feeding for. Do they feed on one side or on both breasts? Does the baby fall asleep on the breast during the feed? What time interval is happening between feeds? Does the baby wake up and cry when they're hungry and then settle and seem satisfied after feeding? Often new parents think the baby's feeding really well because they're on the breast for a long time, like maybe even up to an hour or longer. But much of this is usually just a sleepy baby who's not feeding much at all. And in the first week of life, the mom's milk supply is often just not well established yet. So in terms of outs, you want to know how many wet diapers the baby's had in the last 24 hours. Are there any orange or pink urate crystals in the diaper? And those can be normal up to about day three of life. After that, they might indicate the baby's dehydrated. Does the baby have any spitting up? Those are sort of effortless mouthfuls of milk. Does the baby have any vomiting, which is more forceful? And if so, you want to know how many times that's happening. Does it look like milk or is it yellow or green or bloody? You have to remember that bilious emesis in little babies might look yellow. How many stools? When was the last stool? What color was it? Did the baby pass meconium in the first 48 hours of life? It's also good to ask about the baby's overall activity level. So definitely newborns sleep a lot, but they should be rousable. They should be able to stay awake for even short periods of time. They usually will wake up to feed and then settle down back to sleep once they're satisfied. The urine output for a newborn is variable and it increases over the first few days of life. So it sort of marches up by one wet diaper per day of life. So by day four, the baby should be having at least four heavy wet diapers. And if they're having less urine output than that, it means that the feeding's not well established. Stooling's also variable, but in the first week of life or so, most babies who are being fed enough will progress from those dark green, black meconium stools to green, brown, so-called transitional stools on sort of day three, day four. And then that's followed by those yellow seedy breastfeeding stools by about day five. So if they're not stooling like that, it means that they're really not taking in enough milk. One important objective sign that can help with assessing feeding and hydration is the percent weight loss from birth. So ask about the birth weight and then use your eMERGE weight on the day that you see them to calculate the percent the baby's lost. Newborns are allowed to lose up to 10% of their birth weight. um, And usually the maximum weight loss is on about day four, day five, and they should regain their birth weight by about day 10 to 14. So For example, if it's day three, you're seeing a baby who's not stooling, the baby's 3.2 kilos for you in eMERGE and was 3.5 kilos when they were born, you divide 3.2 by 3.5 and multiply that by 100, and that would give you 91.4%, which means that they've lost 8.6% of their birth weight. And that really means that they're not uh, feeding very well. And it's an early, it's only day three, and they've already lost, you know, over 8% of their birth weight. So you know, for sure, that there's a significant issue going on with the feeding in that baby. Family history, there are some things that run in the family, like Hirschsprung's disease does run in families. So it's good to ask about that, asking about if there's any kids who've had significant medical issues, had to have surgery, special diets, if there's any other bowel issues in the family. 
So the baby will need a full newborn exam from head to toe and focusing on, you know, general appearance, level of alertness, the hydration status, abdominal exam, you know, does the muscles feel normal? Is it distended? A neuro exam focusing on the tone and the strength and the reflexes in the lower extremities. Looking at the bottom, does the anus look normal? Does the gluteal cleft look normal? Is there any dimple or tuft of hair at the sacrum that might indicate a spinal cord abnormality? And some comfortable providers will do a digital rectal exam in a baby like this. You can just use your pinky to assess rectal tone, to assess whether there's any sort of obstruction or it feels normal on the inside. And looking for this characteristic explosion of stool that is suspicious for Hirschsprung's disease. So that means when you when the examiner removes the finger, there's an explosion of stool as the very hypertonic sphincter relaxes. So even though lack of stooling in newborns is usually about poor feeding, there are obviously red flags for more serious conditions that might lead a baby not to stool. So any yellow or green bilious vomiting indicates an obstruction or a pseudo-obstruction, and that needs a general surgery consult emergently. If there's no meconium passed in the first 48 hours of life, that's suggestive of Hirschsprung's disease, which is a congenital abnormality where there's a section of bowel that doesn't have any ganglion cells in it. That needs an emergent gen surge consult as well. Skinny ribbon-like stools might indicate that there's an anal malformation. And again, that needs a gen surge consult. So that would be a chat with them to find out when they can see that baby. And then, of course, overall, if the baby looks lethargic, hypotonic, dehydrated, poorly perfused, that's a baby that you're going to do the usual IV resuscitation, strongly consider underlying sepsis. Do they need a full septic workup? Do they need empiric antibiotics? That baby's going to get admitted to hospital. Even if the baby looks quite well, but if their weight loss is 10% or more, those babies also usually get admitted to hospital for breastfeeding support to sort of reverse this failure to thrive. So if there's no red flags, the baby looks well, vital signs are normal, normal exam, but your impression is that the breastfeeding is just not well established because there's decreased wet diapers, there's significant weight loss from birth, and you think that's why the stooling is uh, not happening. The parents need to be coached and supported with increasing the frequency of breastfeeding. So at least every sort of two to three hours, no longer than that in terms of an interval between the feeding, keeping the baby awake on the breast. So you can use a cold face cloth, rubbing the back, flicking the feet, referring them to a lactation consultant, referring them to a breastfeeding drop-in clinic that a lot of the public health units will offer, whatever's available. And then these newborns need close follow-up. So they really need to have a weight check done a day or two after you see them. And if you can't guarantee that with the primary care provider, then sometimes we even have these babies come back to emerge for a weight check. Lastly, the other thing to consider is that in a baby who's not feeding well or has had significant weight loss from birth, strongly consider doing a fractionated bilirubin, so the conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin, and then using the billytool.org, so www.billytool.org website to make sure that the baby doesn't need phototherapy or any other further treatment for their jaundice. Thanks very much. Great review. Now, constipation in the older pediatric patient is a whole different kettle of fish, which we review in episode 19, part two, with one of the mothers of pediatric EM, Anna Jarvis, and the preeminent pediatric EM researcher, Stephen Friedman. So check that out. Last but not least, Swami's going to talk resuscitation, and this time it's going to be about the challenge of intubating the patient with a metabolic acidosis. 
Your next patient is a 37-year-old male who presents with altered mental status. He's tachycardic in the 130s to kypnic to about 35, O2 sats 95%, BP's 110 over 60, and the glucose in the field is over 500 milligrams per deciliter. The patient is clearly in respiratory distress, and the question that you have when you look at them is, is this patient going to be able to maintain this level of respiratory work, or are they going to crump and I'm going to have to intubate them? The patient's begging for the ET tube, but we have to use extreme caution here. Given the scenario, it is likely that this patient has DKA with severe metabolic acidosis. This is one of the big physiologic challenges in airway along with hypoxemia, hypotension, and pulmonary hypertension. But why? Why is this so dangerous? Metabolic acidosis, like we see in DKA or aspirin overdose, has a compensatory respiratory alkalosis. The patient relies on that respiratory alkalosis in order to maintain their pH. They hyperventilate, leading to decreased CO2, and that brings the pH up a little bit. The typical RSI with paralytics is going to lead to apnea. That leads to increases in CO2, drops in pH, and this is a situation where we can see the peri-intubation arrest. The ideal, and of course we hear it all the time, is don't intubate these patients. Don't intubate the patient with severe metabolic acidosis with respiratory alkalosis. Fix the underlying problem, and as you fix the underlying problem, their respiratory issues will improve. But that's easier said than done. What should we focus on if the patient needs the intubation? We want to minimize or eliminate our apneic time. That means a fast intubation, which I know we're always trying to intubate fast, but really fast this time, please. And then an awake intubation might be a good approach as well, because then there's no apneic time. We want to also mimic their pre-intubation ventilation. Let's get into some logistics of intubating. First, we're going to start by resuscitating the patient for the underlying issue they have. For aspirin, this actually does include giving a bicarb drip, and we can also do that in DKA. Just don't expect it to fix the situation. Number two is to start non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. This will support the patient's work of breathing. It gives you an idea of their minute ventilation. If the patient is breathing 40 times per minute on non-invasive and pulling a volume of one liter, well, then their minute ventilation is 40 liters per minute. This also buys time for our targeted treatment to take effect. And sometimes the non-invasive can fix the situation completely and you never have to intubate the patient. If intubation is still necessary, awake is probably your best bet. Keep the patient breathing, maintain that minute ventilation. You can facilitate this with ketamine if you can't do a full topicalization of that airway. There are some great resources out there on how to do a good awake intubation. George Kovacs has some great posts on this. Scott Weingar has some great stuff, and we'll drop links to those in the show notes. If you're not comfortable with an awake intubation and you have to do RSI, sucks might be preferable to rocuronium as the ability for the patient to spontaneously breathe is going to recover faster after intubation, and that's going to be important with their mechanical ventilation. Often delivery of the tube is pretty easy. Your apneic time is short. You get the tube in quick. The patient doesn't have the peri-intubation arrest, but now's the real danger zone, and that is in the ventilation of that patient after intubation. It's critical that we replicate their pre-intubation minute ventilation with the vent. So again, if that patient was breathing 40 times a minute, pulling one liter per breath, they have a minute ventilation of 40 liters per minute. We want to give them the same with the vent. If we give them lower minute ventilations, their CO2 is going to rise, their pH is going to drop, and you're still at risk for that peri-intubation arrest. Mimicking that minute ventilation with the vent can be difficult, and you might want to get respiratory in to help you. In the meantime, if you can't get your vent to give you the minute ventilation you need, you can continue to bag them, and again, mimic the ventilation they had beforehand. 
Using a pressure support modality might be the right thing to do here, letting the patient wake up, letting them maintain their own respiratory rate, pull the tidal volumes they need with support from the vent so they rest. That might be the best way to mimic the minute ventilation. Again, ideally, we wouldn't need to intubate these patients. Our treatments would work fast enough to turn them around to support that work of breathing with non-invasive ventilation only. But if you need to intubate them, intubate them safely and make sure to set your vent appropriately. All right, big review. First, cerebral venous thrombosis. CVT is the DVT of the brain. Think about CVT, an unexplained headache with thrombotic risk factors. Patients with ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke can have an underlying venous clot, which may alter management significantly. So again, think about CVT in, say, the postpartum woman with a stroke or the head bleed patient with a history of PE. Next, Maria Vankovic ranted on why diphenhydramine and the other first-generation antihistamines are not the safest drugs, and that we should consider the generally safer second-generation antihistamines in just about everyone but the patients who require IV antihistamines, which aren't really very many patients. Next, Britt Long gave us some tips on when to think about the possibility of abdominal compartment syndrome and how to make the diagnosis. The key there is that if a really sick patient has abdominal distension and oliguria, for no other good reason, think abdominal compartment syndrome, get a pressure with a Foley, and call your surgeon. We then had Sarah Reed review her approach to neonatal constipation, driving home the point that usually it's from poor feeding, but that we have to do a good history and physical to look for stuff like obstruction if they have yellow or green bilious vomiting, explosive stool on rectal exam, which would make you think of Hirschsprungs, or a dimple or tuft of hair north of the anus, maybe it's spina bifida causing the constipation. And then lastly, Swami reminded us that we should avoid intubation in the patient with severe metabolic acidosis whenever possible, and that if we do need to intubate, to match the minute ventilation, consider bicarb, and consider sucks to paralyze. That's a wrap. Until next time, take it easy. Hey.